Uh, but joining us on the bat around right now is our good friend Richard Justice of MLB.com. And uh, Richard, uh, the GM meetings, uh, I guess, were this past week. And uh, welcome to the show, number one. What do you got for us? <laughs> What do you guys got? got a, who's running the Orioles now? No, nobody's you, running. Heist, Stan, Heist Stan and I running. thought Heist we'd run. I are going to run the Orioles. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> All right. You know, there's good, a lot of good candidates, and what I, you know, what you hear they're saying is, is that you, whoever we bring in will be in charge. So, you know, I know it's taken a while, but it's, it's more important to get it right than to get it fast. So. Hey, we just finished up with Steve Molesky, um, who writes for MassInSports.com. I wanted to get a more national perspective. Uh, both of the guys that uh, ran the Baltimore Orioles on the field and in the front office over the past eight years or so, nine years, Buck Showalter and Dan Duquette, what do you see in their futures? Um, well, I mean, if I were in charge, I would have made Dan the president of baseball operations I mean, I would have offered them both extensions. I, um, I don't know. You know, baseball is trending younger in, in both those jobs. Yeah. And, um, I, I mean, I think Dan's brilliant, but I don't know what he wants to do and what the future holds for him. Obviously, he wanted to be president of the Toronto Blue Jays, and the Orioles didn't let him go. But, you know, I mean, what is their, um, what is their reputation in Baltimore that is that, they help resurrect the franchise. Yeah, I would and, say that most people here in Baltimore have rather positive things to say about I both think of them. It's great. I yeah. mean, I mean, I don't. Things went bad, and uh, you know, I, last season they tried to make one more run with the group, and when maybe it would have been better to break it up earlier. But it's pretty hard when you've got a bunch of guys like Manny Machado and Adam Jones. Zach Britton to say, okay, we're going to get rid of all these guys and start over because you don't know what the future holds. You don't know that you're going to get another Adam Jones or another Zach Britton. So I, I admire, I admire holding it together as long as you can, and almost always you you go one year too far. I'm I'm always of that thought, you know, about breaking breaking something up and just starting from scratch right. again. But let me ask you this: with the way that the relationship between those two were perceived at times. Uh, and then later on, when both were let go, Dan comes out and says, well, Buck never embraced the analytic type stuff. Then Dan was more in tune to it. Uh, how much of that do you think is just sour grapes? Or do you think there's a lot of truth to that? I think every general manager and every manager has tension. I mean, Mike, God, was there tension between Earl Weaver and Hank Peters? Yeah. <laughs> Holy smoke. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, a story, Stan knows Walter, yeah, the late Walter Yow's a scout sure. comes over one day and he yells across the field. Uh, <laughs> I think at that time he was a Brewers scout. Maybe he had worked for the Orioles at one point, but he yells yeah. at Earl. He yells into the dugout, hey, Earl, let's make a trade that screws up both teams. <laughs> Only he didn't use the word screws up both teams. And Earl cackles, that's the only kind my GM ever makes. (laughs) But it's natural. I mean, look, I I, I live in Houston. Boys here just won a World Series, just won a World Series last year, won 103 games this year. And there's always tension between the manager and the GM. It was so, so much so that we wondered would A.J. Hinch explore other options before signing an extension. 
and I think what they both understand is there's supposed to be some give and take. There's supposed to be some push and some pull, and that's healthy. You know, it's interesting. And can I tell go you ahead. another Oriole story? Yeah, another Oriole story. Uh, they're going over some kid in the, at the end of the organizational meetings at the end of the year, and the scout who signed the kid is in the room, and Cal Sr., Cal Ripken Sr., is saying, the kid can't do this, kid can't do this, kid can't do this, and the scout just kind of looks, has heard enough of this. Right. The scout that's signed the kid and goes, yeah. Well, he says you're not too good either, and it was on. <laughs> it was on. <laughs> Did the vein in Cal's uh, forehead uh, pop out? I think it took about nine people to uh, uh, hold them back. Yeah, well, well Tim Kirkton once says um, he would go around and ask people, uh, okay, just you in a room with a Rottweiler, who gets out alive? <laughs> and uh, everybody go, oh, I don't know, I don't know. And he, he asked Rip Sr., and, and Cal uh, Rip says, uh Oh, that dog doesn't have a chance. <laughs> okay, enough. I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's all right. I don't That's know why right. I've been thinking a lot about Earl lately, you know, about yeah. uh, all the all the brilliance of Earl. How would Earl do in this era? And was Earl ahead of his time? And, you know, because a lot of what Earl went on were those pitcher versus hitter matchups. Yep. A lot of the analytics people tell you those are meaningless. That they they don't they, they, you know I think they will say even sometimes they mean they they do have meaning but for the most part they didn't have meaning and so you wonder like was there some reason a hitter had success all over a pitcher was it a confidence thing but Earl really you know relied on those things. Hey, by the way, and shoot me for not letting you know this about a month ago. Did you know that this Wednesday night there is a reunion and an event in Baltimore, an evening with the 1983 Baltimore Orioles? Oh, that'll be great. Yeah, that'll be great. Yeah, um, Lolo and uh, I'll tell you, the guys that won't be there will be, of course, Mike Flanagan and and Todd Cruz won't be there, but Dempsey won't be able to make it. Boddicker right. had a hunting trip. Uh, Cal Ripken Jr. will not be there, and Jim Palmer had to cancel at the last minute. Got some family stuff going on out in California, but the rest of everybody's going to be there. I mean, from so Boddicker's not coming. Boddicker had a hunting trip that he bought like a couple months before, and it's something he couldn't get out of. Yep. But I went sit behind home plate on a Sunday afternoon game when uh, Boddicker was pitching. I mean, right behind home plate where I could just you know I, I lined up. And it's. I think everybody ought to have the chance to do this. Like watching the pitchers throw live BP, you just can't get your mind around how talented these guys are. And yeah. I remember saying to Boddicker later, I mean, he was pitching to every quadrant of the strike zone. Yeah. And the next day, I said something like, "It, it was amazing to watch it from that angle." And he goes, "Yeah, it wasn't too sharp." And I was like, "Yeah, okay." <laughs> by my, by my. In my book, you were unbelievably sharp. But anyway, that's beside the point. You remember that season fairly well. Wouldn't you say he was kind of the unsung hero of that team? I mean, Eddie and Cal were yeah. the were the big guys, and Singleton, of course, was good. But when Flanagan went down in early May and Boddicker came up, I thought he was the unsung hero of that team. Yeah, and, uh, and, and Bill Swaggerty, you know, had pitched a couple of really big games. I think that team had two six-game losing streaks. Yes, not, it did. If I remember correctly, two seven-game losing streaks. Yeah, seven-game losing streaks. Two seven-game losing streaks. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And I think Swaggerty did he break both of them, or Bodpit broke one? And I think Bod I think... broke. I, I know Bodiger broke one of them, and you know, obviously, he's the last. 
twenty game winner that the Orioles have ever had, and that yeah. happened the year after that. I yeah, mean, and the year after that, you know, what I remember about that is he was about he was so nervous he was about to vomit in that game at Fenway Park where he won his twentieth mm-hmm. because you know when you go pitch, you're pitching for your guys. Well, in this game, he wasn't pitching for his guys; he was pitching for himself. And he didn't know how to deal with it. And it was like the highest compliment of a guy. Like, he didn't know how to go out and pitch for himself. He, he, there was one game in Anaheim where there's a, an old classic rock song, So You Think You're a Romeo, playing a part in a picture show. Yeah. And Bodice is singing it before the game. So you think you're a Romeo, <laughs> playing a part in a picture show. You better keep the ball low or it'll go a long way. <laughs> and. He gave he gives up. I think he, I want to say he gave up like three or four home runs that day, and there was the Anaheim bus driver saying to the boys uh, on the way to the airport. And uh, when they they left the they left Anaheim Stadium, Flanagan yells to the bussy, "Hey, bussy, would you dedicate one to Bod? Sing, uh, take me out of the ball game." <laughs> <laughs> yes, you, sir. How many boys had some fun back then? How many uh, special memories do you have of 1983? I remember the night. Remember it was Brooks Robinson night because Brooks was going into the Hall of Fame that year, and the game got rain-delayed like two times at the start of the game, and they finally brought Brooks out in the car around 9.30 before the game started. Uh, and The game ended about 1 o'clock in the morning. I remember the night Dan Ford Hit a home run to beat Richard Dotson, one to nothing in the bottom of the eighth inning. I mean, and the night Tippy Martinez picked off three guys on Cal's birthday. Yeah, see, I wasn't. I didn't. I didn't come until '84. I, I I was in Baltimore in '83 with the Rangers, but all those games lived in the memory of everybody. Yeah. The, the game where Tippy picked off the three guys that might have been one of the great game. I mean, one of the most amazing games ever played, and. Uh, Disco Danny, didn't he hit? He come off the DL and hit a couple of home runs in Seattle one yes, night. Yes, and, yes, yes. And they're handing out the meal money. Phil Itzo's handing out the meal money, and he goes, uh, <laughs> hey, give me two of them envelopes. I've been carrying this team. Somebody <laughs> in the back goes, you owe us for the last two months. So, <laughs> but, um, geez, it was such, I mean, just looking at those guys, how great was Eddie Murray? Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah, yeah. He was unbelievable. And, you know, when, when he's playing the game, Richard, and he's going through his career, I, you know, I, I don't think a lot of people gave him the credit that he deserved. When You know, in other words, people will always tell you when you're watching somebody, you know, pay attention to this guy and, right. and remember that you're watching this. You know, and I don't think anybody did that with Eddie. Yeah, I think Eddie's thing was he was so consistent yeah. that – I mean, he was a freak, an athletic freak. I mean, they, he would come back to the dugout, and Jimmy Fry would say, "Hey, Eddie, were you looking in or out on that pitch?" And Eddie would go, hey, "Pitch, uh, plate's only like what, fifteen inches or something." <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, that's just like he's on a different level. But um, you know, and I think the thing he doesn't get credit for is everybody thought he was this big, angry, silent guy. He was a he was the loudest mouth in the clubhouse. From the time you walked in there to the time you left, and the other thing I know is I remember is he loved being an Oriole. He used to sing this song, "It's great to be young and an Oriole," mm-hmm. and he would sing it kind of sarcastically. But uh, trust me, he be- he believed it. And they played a game at Rochester one time, and he came back, and 
what he perceived, some of the things he saw, players wearing different gear for batting practice, Mm -hmm. he perceived it as a lack of discipline, Mm -hmm. and it freaked him out. And what he saw of it was, this whole thing's going to hell. He saw it before any of the rest of us saw it, that things were happening in the minor league system that shouldn't be happening. And the one thing the Orioles taught me more than any other is, or those, those teams was, how important that having a farm system is not just about replenishing the talent. Those guys that came up, they were teammates before they were teammates. There was a brotherhood. Mm-hmm. They all Cal, they all learned everything they knew about the game from Cal Senior, and they knew that Earl and Cal Senior were on the same page. They all had similar experiences in Bluefield, Rochester, Charlotte, all those places they played, coaches, uh, restaurants, all those things they talk about the light pole here, you know, I hit a home run off that. Yeah, I did that one time. And it was it was part of what created a family. And anybody who thinks it's a cliche, like what happened with the Orioles in the 70s and the 80s, I mean the 60s, the 70s, and 80s, it was really true. They were smarter than anybody else. Palm Boswell was writing this for, for years, yeah. that they just were more efficient and did more with less than anybody else. We're talking with Richard Justice of MLB.com. And, Richard, the Orioles in midseason did something that I think it touched a lot of fans here. They signed, actually signed Brooks Robinson to a contract to be a part of the team again. Uh, and that's more like a sort of a PR thing. But they did the same thing a couple weeks later with Eddie Murray. Uh, Eddie's a good 15, 18, 18, 19 years younger than than Brooks. Do you think Eddie's got a lot to offer this team, a team that is as down as they are now? I'm not suggesting he be named manager, but couldn't he teach some of that along the way to this organization? I just think the coolest thing in Sarasota is to show up there and you'd have you have McGregor in uniform and Dempsey in uniform. Flanny would be around when he was still alive. Palmer. I just think there's a, there's in remembering the history of your franchise. Eddie is a genius. Eddie is an Eddie's aptitude for the game is off the charts. And some of it is the fact that he's just a smart guy. Some of it is the fact the people that he was around, like Flanagan and Cal Senior and all. Yeah, I think he, those guys all have lots to offer. But I also one of the things Buck did that was so special to me was line the hallways there between the clubhouse and the field mm-hmm. with uh, Orioles because yep. he said in terms of um, terms of history and tradition, uh, this city takes a backseat to nobody. And he wanted and remember that summer of I guess it was 2012. They, Janet Marie did the six sculptures out in the left field pavilion or third, yeah. whatever you call it. Yeah. And uh, Buck had had the players go out there and listen, and wanted them to understand who Earl Weaver was and who Jim Palmer was and why it was important and, and the, what the, the uniform they wore represented in a larger sense. Yeah, no question about it. And, you know, what, you, what, what Stan was asking you about the, the teaching aspect of it, and that goes back to what you were saying about Cal Sr., was the fact that back then – when you came up through this organization, it didn't make any difference how long you were there. But, by God, when you left and you were lucky enough to make the major leagues, you knew how to play the game. Yeah, and you do. You knew there was when you came up, there was one way to do rundowns. There was one way to line up cutoff men. Yeah. There was a Bible that Earl and Cal, and I guess 
it was both of them, uh, they developed. And that was another thing that started to come undone is that uh, there were some brought into the organization that wanted to do cutoff and relays a different way. Well, look, you're, this is our religion. This is, this is what we believe. We don't change it. And there became a tug of war inside, and somebody should have taken over. And, and uh, I mean, it was not good. You know, yeah. the, other night, the other night during the football game uh, on TV, uh, they showed a clip of Al Michaels, Howard mm. Cosell, and Earl Weaver in the <laughs> booth, in the booth in at Pittsburgh. the end, no, in Philadelphia, oh, in Philadelphia, at the end of the World Series, and they broadcast, and then, you know, Howard going through his spiel to Al Michaels about how ABC's lucky to have such a great young talent like you, and of course, later we all know what the relationship was a little bit between, you know, Cosell and, and Al Michaels, but then... Cosell turns to Earl and goes, and my friend, it's great to have you here and to see this. And, you know, this was your team. And then Earl looked and said, no, man, this is not, I had nothing to do with this. This was all those, all those guys down there. But really, Richard, that was Earl's team. Yeah. <laughs> the I one mean, that lost to Milwaukee uh, the previous year on the final weekend of the year. Right. And for anybody who hasn't seen it, the end of the last, in the end of the 82 season with Cosell's little monologue about yeah. Mayor Schaefer yeah. and EBW and Earl uh, still brings chills to to me. Anybody want watch to see that? Yeah, it was. I think also. I think Altabelli was a. I think he. I think Earl's departure mm-hmm. fueled people because maybe some of the players thought Earl got too much credit and that it was a little bit extra motivation. But look, let's face it: when you have Cal and Eddie in the middle of your lineup and you have uh, Flanagan, McGregor, Boddicker, and Palmer. And Tippy throwing the ninth inning, you're going to be pretty good. Yeah, hey, we've and got, the way they did with Lowenstein and Renicky, that obviously that was, was Earl's thing. Yeah, you know John Shelby was a huge part of that that team, and just getting third base settled. You know, hey Richie Dower was a really you, really good player. You've obviously seen that old uh, Weaver tape with Bill Haller, right? Yes, I have yeah, okay. many times. Many well, times. And, and, hey, I got to tell you this. I got, I got a story to tell you. Go ahead, right. but I got a story to tell you afterwards about that. All right, well. So the late Steve Palermo, whenever, like the two years the Royals were in the World Series, he would come and sit with me for the game. And so I used to think it was kind of a joke. George Solomon at the Washington Post assigned me to write a story, the relationship between Earl and umpires. I used to think a little of it was act. What I found out was they hated the guy. I mean, they hated the guy. And they didn't like Cal Sr. that much either. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, Palermo would come and sit by me, and he would go, and I'd say, you're going to tell me some stories. He goes, I'm going to tell you some stories about the little idiot. And, uh, <laughs> and one of the best ones was, uh, I think it's the first game, it was early in the game at Yankee Stadium. It's sold out, and he throws Earl out in the first inning. Earl goes and stands, maybe you guys, Earl goes and stands on second base, and he ain't leaving. And he's not leaving the field. And Stevie tells him, uh, look, I'm, I'm going to give you one minute to leave this effing field. And if you don't, I'm going to forfeit this game, and you're going to have 50, look around. You're going to have right. 50,000 people here that are going to kick your ass. And he, he looks over at the third base umpire, Richie Garcia, and goes, Richie, start the clock one minute. I'm not leaving, Earl. I'm not leaving. He goes, 50 seconds, Earl. I'm not leaving. 40 seconds. And finally, at like five seconds, 
Earl starts running <laughs> off the field and yelling and screaming, I'm calling the league office. I'm calling the league office. He goes, that's fine. you got three seconds to get to the phone. <laughs> uh, well, you know, that, 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 whole, that whole video that I referenced was, was done by Channel 9 down in D.C. They, right. had a, they had a camera in the camera well mm-hmm. right next to the first base dugout, and that's how, I mean, they, 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 the mic'd, they mic'd up Bill Haller, right. and, and that's how that happened. Well, of course, Earl goes running across the field, and and Haller tells him, and along with Eddie Murray, you know that Mike Flanagan, he's just behind the rubber. You know, he was called for a balk, right? And then, you know, and that's when everything broke loose for like three and a half minutes and what have you, and back and forth they go. And then Mike Flanagan once told me a long time ago. He says, you know, the greatest thing about that video is whenever we were down on a bus or something like that. He says, or in the hotel room, we'd go watch that video. And that would just cheer guys up. <laughs> and he goes, he says, and what the, the greatest thing about that story that nobody knows, he says, is that Earl goes running out there, and he looks at me, and he says, did you balk? And, and I said, yeah. And he said, out of hell with it. <laughs> well, he, know, just, he just wanted a piece of Haller. <laughs> well, you know, and the version I heard is that Earl, as he's leaving the field, says to Flanny, now you did balk. You did not balk, and he goes. Well, I think I did, and he goes. <laughs> the way I heard it was, Earl said, "Well, bleep you too." <laughs> hey, Richard, we got you for just another minute or two. Uh, the big stories uh, in free agency this year. Let me ask you. Uh, MLBTradeRumors.com came out with their predictions and projections of years and and locations that uh, the top fifty free agents are going to. Be at. I'm just going to ask you about numbers one and two. They had Harper uh, getting 14 years at uh, 14 years, 420, and Manny 390 for 13 years. Do you see that in this market? I don't know. He's Manny's already. Well, I mean, Harper's turned down what 10 years, 300 million. Right. Yeah. It's just I can't even. I mean, they are 26 years old. Um. Where did they say they were going to go? They said that Manny, they predicted Philadelphia. Yeah, I, I agree think, with that. And I think Harper was, I think it was Los Angeles, I think. Yeah, see, I don't think, that, I don't think they're going I, to do that. I think the Giants are going to be the team in play for Harper. Yeah, the only thing, I don't think Bryce, I, think it's a, I, don't, I don't think it's his favorite place. But I do agree, they're going to open the, the wallet yeah. for him. Yeah, uh, who, I, I don't I think Manny's, I think Manny's going to have limited options. I think the Cardinals. Would make room for Manny, but I've, we'll see. I mean, I've you're heard asking it. me, do I think the numbers will be there? Yeah, do you think those well, length, of, is, length of contract will be there? Well, there are, you know, you don't have 26-year-old free agents. I guess yeah. anything's possible. I hey, mean, one last thing about uh, Manny that I've heard of, uh, sort of a rumor that makes some sense to me, is that one player they think that Manny would really respect in the locker room with him is Marcakis. And I hear that the Phillies – are sort of hell bent on signing Marcakis first. That would uh, make sense. To, you know that he could kind of control Manny a little bit and get him get him thinking straight. So I think yeah, Marcakis you know, Machado. In, in defense of Manny, yeah, the guy does play 159 games every year. Yeah. So while he, I mean, you know, I remember I once complained to Larusa about Ricky Henderson, and Tony looked at me and said, "All the great ones are a little bit different." Yeah. And you have. Your job is to get the best out of them, mm-hmm. you know. And Buck did a great. 
Buck did a phenomenal job. I mean, we're never going to know the times he took Manny aside. And I think J.J. Hardy had a lot of this mm-hmm. to, to do with it and to say, now, look, you can't do that, blah, 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 you know. Um, but. What do you think possessed Manny to have that interview with Ken Rosenthal and admit openly that he's not Johnny Hustle? I mean, what was in I, it I for him? He, I, um, it's almost like it was an screw you to the world. Yeah. Like, I know what everybody expects me to say. Yeah. I know yeah. what everybody expects me to do. And guess what? I don't have to do it. Yeah. Um, but, I mean... You guys didn't think of him as a bad guy when he was in Baltimore, did you? No, I didn't. I mean, you you could tell that uh-huh. you know, you could tell that the answers were you, were, you know, the the words were just words, words. really. Yeah. Right, I mean, right, he was right, saying right. what you he was saying what he thought you wanted to hear. Yeah, I did but not. You think... mean it's not like uh, Mike Musino? No, not at all. No, no. Like. Uh, Heisty always had the first question with Musino, and Musino would go, "Craig." That's not in the form of a question. <laughs> <laughs> but then but then it got to the point where Moose would have his back to all of us, and then he'd turn around and go, yes, Craig. <laughs> yeah, and the, yeah. well, how did he explain that one? I remember that one night. <laughs> yeah. Hey, RJ, give my best to Marty. We Thank always you. appreciate the time you spend with us. It's always insightful. All Thank right? you, guys. Talk to you soon. Happy holidays coming up. Same to you.